0: Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Internet Radio. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. Today is Friday, September, September, July 18th, 2014. I'm really getting getting ahead of myself. I want to apologize for the delay tonight in starting, and I'm sure a lot of listeners actually haven't come back yet to see if there would be a program. I I was forced to do a Skype upgrade, and and it disrupted my streaming software, so I was forced to reboot my streaming computer, and and, um, that's Microsoft. I I hardly use it. I only use it on my streaming computer, and, and it gets me every chance it can. Our prayers tonight are with Corey Clayton, a young man who, along with his family, is a friend and listener, they're in Northern California. Corey has suffered a severe concussion. We pray that Yahweh facilitates and eases his full recovery. And, and we hope that you join in in prayer also. That leads me to something else that um, I regret not having had the chance to mention several weeks ago. And that is the passing of a dear sister, Louie Keegan who was who who was well into her into her eighties, I forget exactly how old she was, she passed away to the father on June twentieth of this year. Through her ministry, Gertrude Ministries, she and her fellow worker, Mary Jacklaw, have comforted comforted edified and encouraged many of our Christian brethren and especially prisoners even me Mary endeavors to continue in in their ministry and she can be contacted at gertrudeministries.org we'll put a link on the notes to this program at the top when we posted on Christagenia tonight. It is not my intention to ever sound callous, but my outlook is quite different, even from many identity Christians, regarding the death of loved ones. And first I must state that I have no need to apologize for not looking to the things behind, so to speak, and always focusing on the challenges that lay ahead. That that's at least what, my, what I like to think that my usual practice is. And while it is good, that it, and it, it is good that we should remember our brother's and sisters and fellow workers who have passed, we must, as Christians, know this, that we have no need to pray for the dead. I know a lot of people are going to be taken aback by that statement, but we have no need to pray for the dead. Rather, we should pray for the living. If we are grounded in our Christian faith, We must know that our deceased brethren are already with Christ and they are already at peace. I'm going to read a a passage from Philippians chapter 1, the words of Paul, to that assembly. And Paul is writing concerning the possibility of his own execution He's facing trial in Rome, and he's writing concerning that possibility of his own death to the Philippians. From verse 20, in accordance with my eager expectation and hope, seeing that in nothing shall I be ashamed. But with all free spokenness, as always, even now, Christ shall be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And he's talking about the trial he is about to face in Rome before Nero, who was nuts. For me, verse 21, for me, to live anointed and to die is gain. But if to live in the flesh, this for me, a fruit of labor that I know not which I prefer. Paul didn't know if he preferred to live or if he preferred to die. He says, I am afflicted by the two, having the desire for which to depart and to be with Christ very much the better. But to continue in the flesh is of more necessity, speaking to the Philippians, for your sake and persuaded of this. I know that I shall abide and remain with you, with you all, for your advancement and joy of the faith. Paul had a positive outlook that he was going to live. In truth, he was executed and that's OK. He fully demonstrated the Christian faith, that we know that we have a life after death, and that is our real life, our permanent life that we look forward to this, forward to. Understanding this, Christians should know that, while it is indeed proper to lament. Our deceased brethren, because we miss them, it is really not necessary to pray for them. Rather, we can be we can be comforted in knowing that our deceased brethren, being with Christ, shall. Be praying for us. That reflects the Christian hope in Christ. To me, this reflects the meaning of the prayer that Christ Himself prayed when He was about to depart from the world. And we see that in John chapter 17. And I'm going to read several verses from verse 8. For I have given unto them, meaning unto the apostles, unto his disciples, the words which thou gavest me, Christ praying to God the Father, Christ being God the Father manifest in the flesh, prays as an example to men. He didn't come here to live as a God. He came here to live as a man. And they have received them and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou did send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are mine, for they are yours, I'm sorry, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world. But they are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your own name those whom you have given me. In other words, preserve them here, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those that you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition meaning the Canaanite Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil. They are not of the world. Of course, we have to be in this world. We have to experience the things which Yahweh our God wants us to experience. We have to be in the world to edify our brethren, to to, um, build the kingdom of God on earth. That's the final Christian promise, right? I pray not that thou should take them out of the world, but that thou should keep them from evil. They are not in the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so, I have also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they might also be sanctified through the truth. Neither do I pray for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be as one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in you." that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them, and you and me, and that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and you have loved them, and you have loved me. Father, I will that I will, I wish, that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you have sent me, and I have declared unto them my name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me, may be in them, and I in them. Jesus Christ, departing from this world, prayed for those whom he was leaving behind in the world. We should hope that our deceased friends and loved ones feel the same way about us, and for that reason, we should care for our friends and loved ones in life just as much and even more than we may honor them in death. It's how we treat each other. It's a life that counts. So, the dead... We hope, if we have treated our brethren well, the dead would be praying for us. We have no need, being Christians, to pray for the dead. The Epistles of Paul, Romans, part 15. The story of Jacob, Esau, and the nations continued. Comparing the Israelites of Judea with the Edomites of Judea, Judea from the beginning of Romans chapter 9. Towards the later part of that chapter, Paul went on to explain that the calling of Yahweh in Christ is both for the Israelites of Judea and the Israelites of the ancient dispersions, those who were taken into the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities and who never returned to Palestine. Paul quoted pertinent passages from Hosea and Isaiah in order to illustrate his assertions. The Old Testament prophets, I'm sorry, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah tells us that these people would be found in Europe. And that is where the apostles went after them. These are indeed the nations sprung from the seed of Abraham, which Paul describes in Romans chapter 4. Then in Romans chapter 10, Paul contrasted the Israelites of the ancient dispersions, who were no longer called by the name of Israel, to the Israelites of Judea, to whom Paul continued to apply the name Israel. Keeping the law and the writings, keeping the Sabbaths and the rituals and the circumcision, Ostensibly, they deserved to keep the title. The Israelites of the dispersions included the Romans themselves. And although Paul does not explain as much, the Romans were from a body which departed from Israel many centuries earlier and were not a part of the Assyrian captivity. Yet, Paul still considers them to be lost Israelites from the very beginning of this epistle in a language which we have illustrated he uses to reference in reference to them that in the Old Testament was the same language used only in reference to the children of Israel. And we see that in Romans chapter 1, where Paul talks about the law and and, and the the majesty of God and how the Romans had it and changed the truth of God into a lie. We see that in Romans chapter 2, where Paul talks about the Romans having kept the law written in their hearts, something which was a matter of prophecy exclusively for the children of israel we see it in many other places in this epistle leading up to these chapters here in romans chapter 11 paul turns his attention once again to the israelites of judea whom he considers the remnant of israel And indeed they were. They were the remnant of Israel in spite of the fact that all those Israelites cast off in ancient times the nations to whom Paul brought the gospel were in fact also Israelites now being reconciled to Yahweh in Christ. Therefore, we must continue to bear in mind that since the beginning of Romans chapter 9 and the opening of his prayer for his brethren in Judea, whom Paul had described as his kinsmen according to the flesh. There are three parties which Paul addresses throughout this discourse, Romans chapters 9, 10, 11. Those three parties are the Israelites of Judea, the Edomites of Judea, and the dispersed Israelites of the nations, the dispersed Israelites of antiquity, who were being reconciled to Yahweh in Christ. Paul called the first group Israel, but sometimes they are also included under the more general description of Judeans. Paul referred to the second group, the Edomites, as Judeans, but he never considered them to be Israel. And in Romans chapter 9, verse 6, Paul explicitly told us that they were not Israel. As for the third group, Paul did refer them to is, as Israel in other epistles, but not here in Romans, where the context of his message is quite different. Here, Paul labels the third group as the nations. In other epistles, he more explicitly reveals that they are lost Israel. One place is such as in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul referred to some of the nations of Europe which were practicing paganism, and Paul said that, Behold, Israel, according to the flesh... The things that the nation sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to Yahweh. There, in one Corinthians chapter ten, Paul called those dispersed Israelites Israel according to the flesh, and he was certainly not talking about Judeans of any sort. And here he doesn't, for for the purposes of his illustration throughout these chapters. For rhetorical purposes, he's not considering the Israelites of the nations as Israel. He's using that label more specifically of the Israelites who kept the law who were in Palestine up to this point. that is why context, the context, both biblical context, historical context, as well as the internal context of any given epistle is so instrumental in acquiring a correct interpretation of Paul's epistles. The world was confused as to who was who. And in these respects, the world is still confused today. But Paul of Tarsus, he was certainly not confused. He knew who Israel was scattered abroad. He knew who Israel was at his time. And he knew in Judea who the Edomites were. He was not confused. Before commencing with Romans chapter 11 we shall discuss a few details from the end of chapter 10 which we believe are certainly worth repeating in Romans 10:19 there is a very misunderstood statement where concerning the remnant of Israel in Judea Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 32:21 and he says in verse 19 of Romans 10, then I say, had Israel not known? Firstly, Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by a nation that is not. By a nation without understanding, I will provoke you to anger. Many universalists abuse this passage to support their perversions of Scripture. Many Paul bashers take advantage of this passage, not understanding it to support their tendency towards Paul bashing. The Paul bashers Paul bash because they patently accept the mistranslations and the misunderstandings of the universalists. If the Paul bashers would study Paul from, from its foundations, from scratch, from the Greek, from the biblical context, they would understand Paul. They don't because they really don't know what Paul is saying, and they don't read Greek. Here Paul is using a... He's using Deuteronomy 32.21 as a rhetorical device. In the context of Deuteronomy, Yahweh was warning Israel that he would provoke them to jealousy with another people whom he considered to be no people. Here... Paul is using the passage in much the same way. However, this time, he has already explained this earlier in Romans chapter 9, however, this time the people who were not a people were indeed the nations of the cast-off Israelites of old. Paul had already explained in Romans chapter 9 that the cast-off Israelites of the dispersions were described by Hosea, and Paul quoted this passage in relation to the nations. They were described by Hosea as being not a people. And in Christ, they were being reconciled to Yahweh. And once again, as Paul quotes Hosea, they would be considered his people and the sons of Yahweh. Therefore, Paul uses this passage as a rhetorical argument that these dispersed, divorced Israelites who were not a people would provoke to jealousy the remnant of Israel in Judea, which was not cast off, but which continued to look to the law for their righteousness, not yet having accepted Christ. At the end of Romans chapter 10, Paul also used the text of the opening verses of Isaiah chapter 65 as a rhetorical device, where he said, and I quote from verse 20, then Isaiah very boldly says, I am found by those not seeking me. I am become manifest to those not inquiring of me. In verse 21, then to Israel, he says, the whole day long, I stretch out my hands to a disobedient and contradictory people. Examining the original context of those statements from Isaiah, we see that the first statement was indeed directed by Yahweh to an idolatrous pagan Israel, who in Isaiah's time, had only turned to him when it was too late. They only turned to him after the beginnings of the punishment that they were receiving for their sins. How many times do we see that in our brethren today? How many supposedly Christian white people do we see who never think of God until something goes wrong in their lives? And it's too late to do anything at all about it. Then they cry out to God. That's what Isaiah is describing in Isaiah sixty-five twenty. He's describing an Israel who had gone off into paganism. They were hanging out in all the bow temples, the casinos, the, the, the churches, the Judeo churches of their times. The burlesque calls everything else. The Baal temples were really all about the entertainment centers. And when the Assyrians came to destroy their land and take them all away, that's when they turned to God. That's what Isaiah sixty-five twenty is about. Then Paul quotes Isaiah sixty-five twenty-one. And Isaiah 65:21 is directed at Israel in general, at all of Israel. But Paul is using it as a rhetorical device here to describe the remnant of Israel in Judea. The rhetoric is fitting, since rejecting Christ, those people were certainly continuing in their disobedience. And here, with that, we will present Romans chapter 11 from verse 1. Now I say, has Yahweh thrust away his people? Certainly not. This statement does not mean that all those people, those dispersed Israelites being reconciled to Yahweh are not his people. They certainly are. Paul is talking about the Israelites in Judea. And he's saying that Yahweh has not thrust away there. There's some differences in the manuscripts here. Some manuscripts have his people whom he foreknew, some manuscripts have his inheritance which he foreknew. Of course, in Jeremiah chapter 31, Yahweh promised that Israel would always be a nation so long as there were a, a sun, moon, and stars among other promises. From Ezekiel chapter 34, the chapter after the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem is described from verse 11, For thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out. At this time, all of Israel is taken off into captivity, except for the very minor few who escaped it. And they were still, even those, put off from the face of Yahweh, even though they never really really left Palestine. For thus saith Yahweh God, behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock in the day that he is among his sheep that are scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and will deliver them out of all the places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. There are no exceptions here. And I will bring them out from the people from the other nations and gather them from the countries and will bring them to their own land and feed them upon the mountains of Israel by the rivers and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in a good pasture And upon the high mountains of Israel shall be their fold. And there shall they lie in a good fold and in a fat pasture. They shall feed upon the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will cause them to lie down. Sayeth Yahweh God, I will seek that which was lost and bring again that which was driven away and will bind up that which was broken and will strengthen that which was sick. But I will destroy the fat and the strong. And I will feed them with judgment. And he goes on he's in that chapter of Ezekiel to say that he will judge between cattle and cattle, between the rams and the she goats, much like the parable of Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the sheep and goat nations. The purpose of the gospel, in part, is described in Ezekiel chapter 37, where Israel and Judah would again be made one stick. Paul is talking about Judean Israelites, who were, for the most part, the remnant of Judah and not of Israel. Israel was, for the most part, cast off from Palestine. And even those who remained, such as some of the Samaritans, were still shut out from the temple, from the temple in Jerusalem. So Paul is not saying that God has thrust away his people, meaning Israel and Palestine. Paul's not meaning to convey the message that Israel scattered among the nations are not being included in the covenants by that, by that saying. Verse 1 goes on to state, Indeed, I also am an Israelite of the offspring of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. And verse 2, Yahweh has not thrust away his people whom he knew beforehand, whom he foreknew. Here, Paul illustrates the necessity of being a genetic Israelite to be considered as one of Yahweh's people. If there were no such necessity, Paul would have had no reason to make any claims concerning his own genetic lineage. As we've seen in in Romans chapter 9, where Paul talked about the nations, And how they, too, had a share in the gospel, well, he quoted Hosea. He meant those nations of cast-off Israelites who at one time were called not my people and quoted the promise to them that they would once again be called his people. So the nations Paul went to had to be genetic Israelites? Well, the people in Palestine, Paul describes here, the Israel people in Palestine are also genetic Israelites. Paul stressing the fact that you must be a genetic Israelite. If the faith were merely for whosoever believeth, regardless of whether they were of genetic Israel, then Paul should not have all been concerned with the Israelites of Judea according to the flesh, as he says in Romans chapter 9. Paul should not have been concerned here in Romans chapter 11 with his own race and lineage. But here Paul answers the question concerning the people of God by describing his own racial heritage as an example. Not merely what he believed. He could have said, indeed, I also am an Israelite who believes in the gospel. I believe in Jesus. He didn't say that. He went right to the necessity of genetic lineage so that he could be counted as an Israelite and therefore the people of God are the people of God by genetic heritage and not by belief. The Universalists cannot define certain words or concepts in the New Testament in one manner half the time and in a contrary manner the other half at the a time. They can't have it both ways. If seed are literal descendants in Romans chapter 4, in Romans chapter 9, and if seed, or offspring, as the Christogenia New Testament always translates the word, are literal descendants here in Romans chapter 11, verse 1, for I also am an Israelite of the sperma of Abraham then seed a literal descendants everywhere in the new testament if israel is according to the flesh israel according to the flesh in romans chapter 9 if israel is according to the flesh in 1 corinthians chapter 10 then Israel is according to the flesh everywhere in the New Testament. The problem is that the Jews, this is the, 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 where the universalists stumble. The Jews were not all Israel according to the flesh. And Paul makes that clear in Romans chapter 9. If Israel, according to the flesh, are those whom Yahweh knew beforehand, here in Romans 11, verse 2, then those whom Yahweh knew beforehand are Israel, genetic Israel, according to the flesh. Everywhere in the New Testament. You can't define these, these phrases one way. The universalists cannot have it both ways. These terms cannot refer to some ethereal, non-genetic body of so-called believers part of the time, and literal, genetic Israelites the other part of the time. And then the universalists get to pick and choose between the two concepts for each item, wherever they are encountered they get to pick what it means? No. These terms must represent consistent, concrete concepts throughout Scripture, or the Word of God is made into nonsense. In reality, the universalists teach nonsense, and the Word of God is certain. Genetic Israelites are the only people God knew beforehand and only for those genetic Israelites are the promises of God in Christ. To finish verse 2, do you not know in Elijah what the writings say, how he petitions Yahweh concerning Israel? Yahweh, they have killed your prophets, and they have demolished your altars, and I alone was left remaining, and they seek after my life. We have previously demonstrated in this series that much of the evil in ancient Jerusalem was due to the infiltration of the Canaanites and the Kenites in the most ancient times. Here we shall summarize that explanation because we constantly need to keep the biblical and historical context in mind when interpreting the scriptures. When Daniel, in the story of Susanna, found two corrupt priests who attempted to pervert the morals of a certain young woman, Daniel exclaimed, Oh, thou seed of Canaan and not of Judah, beauty has deceived thee, and lust has perverted thine heart. How much is that like the Jews? The prophets tell the story of how, as Jude, the Apostle Jude, puts it, certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation ungodly men. The Apostle Peter described this same thing in his second epistle. These things cannot be understood in isolation. They can only be understood by inspecting and accepting the entire scripture in its historical context rather than simply trying to explain in isolation one small event at a time. It can't be done that way. One facet of this infiltration of Israel is described in Malachi chapter 2 and prophetically it relates to John chapter 8 from verse 8 but you are departed out of the way you have caused many to stumble at the law Malachi chapter 2 is addressing the priests in Jerusalem you have corrupted the covenant of Levi saith Yahweh of hosts therefore Have I also made you contemptible and base before all the people? According as you have not kept my ways, but have been partial in the law. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously. An abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the holiness of Yahweh who he loved and has married the daughter of a strange God. Yahweh will cut off the man that does this, the master and the scholar, out of the tabernacles of Jacob and him that offers an offering unto Yahweh of hosts. This infiltration is described a little differently in Ezekiel chapter 16, where it says, Again, the word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations, and say, Thus saith Yahweh God unto Jerusalem, Thy birth and thy nativity is of the land of Canaan, Thy father was an Amorite, and thy mother a Hittite. And as for thy nativity, in the day thou was born, thy navel was not cut, neither was thou washed in water to supple thee. Thou was not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. Now finally we see the same infiltration described again in another way. In Jeremiah chapter 2, but we shall only quote a few of the segments of the chapter, even though the entire chapter is pertinent to our explanation here. Moreover, the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith Yahweh, I remember thee, the kindness of thy youth, the love of thine espousals, when thou wentest after me in the wilderness, in the land that was not sown, Israel was holiness unto Yahweh, and the firstfruits of his increase, all that devour him shall offend. Evil shall come upon them, saith Yahweh. Hear ye the word of Yahweh, O house of Jacob, and all the families of Israel. Thus saith Yahweh. What iniquity have your fathers found in me that they are gone far from me and have walked after vanity and are become vain. And from verse 7, And I brought you into a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof. But when you entered, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priest said not, Where is Yahweh? and they that handle the law knew me not. The pastors also transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied my Bow, and walked after things that do not profit. Wherefore, I will yet plead with you, saith Yahweh, and with your children's children will I plead. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out, cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Skipping to verse 21, Yet I had planted thee a noble vine, holy, a right seed. How then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? For though thou wash thee with niter, and take thee much soap, yet thine iniquity is marked before me, saith Yahweh God. Now from this, from Jeremiah 2, from Ezekiel 16, from Daniel and Susanna, from Malachi chapter 2, from this we can determine the nature of the false prophets among the people that Jude and Peter both explained were infiltrators, men from of old who were ordained to judgment because from of old they were not Israelites, they were wicked interlopers. From this we can determine the nature of the bad figs of Jeremiah chapter 24. Yahweh showed me, and behold, two baskets of figs were set before the temple of Yahweh after Nebuchadnezzar. King of Babylon had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, and the princes of Judah, with the carpenters and smiths from Jerusalem, and brought them to Babylon. One basket had very good figs, even like the figs of the first ripe. The other basket had very naughty figs, which could not be eaten. They were so bad. Then said Yahweh unto me, What seest thou, Jeremiah? And I said, figs, the good figs, very good. And the evil, very evil that cannot be eaten, they are so evil. Well... If a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, then these bad figs did not come from a good tree. We present all of of this so that we may be reminded that the prophets of Baal, the false prophets among the people, which both Jude and Peter described in their epistles, They were not always Israelites. Of course, sometimes they certainly were. But they were often Canaanite infiltrators. The minds of the Israelites are continually corrupted by those Canaanite infiltrators. Peter said in his second epistle that there were false prophets among the people even as there shall be false teachers among you who privily shall bring in damnable heresies. And Peter proceeds to associate them, as Jude also did, with the angels that sinned. Jude said there were certain men crept in unawares. The people didn't notice that these men were sneaking in among them. Into marrying with them, becoming priests and leaders and rulers among them, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, Jew perverts. The infiltration of Canaanite false prophets into the assemblies of Yahweh throughout time has been the fulfillment of the warnings found in the books of Numbers and Joshua that if Israel did not destroy the Canaanites, they would become thorns and pricks in our eyes. And they are to this very day. If your Christian identity pastor is preaching any form of mercy, blessing forgiveness, grace to the other races to non-Adamic peoples he is a prick in your eye and one example one modern example of the warnings of Jude and Peter with this we'll move on with Romans verse 4 chapter 11 so what did the response to him say, meaning the response to Elijah, that these false prophets wanted to take his life? So what did the response to him say? I have left to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed a knee to bow. In 1 Kings chapter 18, we see the trial by fire, whereby Elijah had challenged the prophets of Baal. And afterwards, when Elijah prevailed, and he had turned the people to Yahweh, 450 of the prophets of Baal were put to the sword. In 1 Kings chapter 19, it is written that Ahab, who witnessed the trial by fire, and knew about the subsequent slaying of the prophets, had told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had slain all the prophets, meaning the false prophets, with the sword. And we read about her reaction from 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 2. And it says... Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life, make not thy life, meaning Elijah's life, as the life of one of them, meaning dead, by tomorrow, about this time. Now from this, Elijah was troubled and went to the land of Judah where he prayed. And from verse four it says, the words of Elijah, O Yahweh, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. Elijah humbled himself before the threat of Jezebel. He was then approached by an angel of Yahweh, which caused him to eat and to travel for 40 days. And the travel ended at Mount Horeb. And from verse 9 we read, (laughs) And he came thither unto a cave, and lodged there. And behold, the word of Yahweh came to him, and said to him, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for Yahweh, God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars and slain my prophets with the sword. And I, only I am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go forth, and stand upon the mount before Yahweh. And behold, Yahweh passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains, and broke in pieces the rocks before Yahweh. But Yahweh was not in the wind. And after the wind and earthquake. But Yahweh was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But Yahweh was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. And it was so, when Elisha heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle, and went out and stood in the entering of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him, and said, What doest thou hear? Elijah, and he said, I have been very jealous for Yahweh, God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even only I, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And Yahweh said unto him, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when thou comest, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, and Abdelmehalah, I'm sorry, the son of Shaphat of Abelmehalah, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room in thy place and it shall come to pass that he that escapes the sword of Hazael shall Jehu slay and he that escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay yet I have left me seven thousand in Israel all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal and every mouth which has not kissed him the story of Elisha and Hazael of Syria is continued in Scripture in 2 Kings chapters 8 and 9. And Hazael is indeed used by Yahweh as a means to punish the disobedient in the kingdom of Ahab in Israel. However, a close examination of the historical context of Scripture reveals that many of the people of Damascus in in Syria which Israel ruled over from the time of David, were themselves Israel and not Aram, not Syrians. And that many Israelites were indeed dwelling both in and beyond the bounds of Ahab's kingdom. This passage does not mean to say that only 7,000 in Israel would be preserved. For indeed, just a few decades later, it is known from inscriptions that when, they, when the Assyrians took Samaria, a single city, they took well over 20,000 Israelite people into captivity. So in 1 Kings chapter 19, Yahweh reassures Isaiah that there were still 7,000 men in Israel who would not oppose him because they had not worshipped Baal. And for that reason, Elijah had nothing to fear because all those who did oppose him would be slain. And of course, there were many people that were apathetic that were not involved, that took neither side. But there is another factor, which we do not yet see, which gave Paul reason to cite this account concerning Elijah, because Paul has not yet expressed the sentiment, which he does later in this epistle. In Romans chapter 16, verse 20, where he says and the God of peace, speaking to the Romans, and the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. In order to see who Paul meant by Satan, one can examine the context of the second earliest of Paul's preserved epistles, and that is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where Paul said that the son of perdition, after the working of Satan, was sitting in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Satan was the Edomite Jew. Paul must also have understood Daniel chapter 9, which explains that after the cutting off of the Messiah, the people of the Messiah would come and destroy Jerusalem. Once these things are realized, the historical and scriptural context of Paul's pleas for his brethren in Judea may be better understood. It it should be evident that while Paul knew that there were many Israelites outside of Palestine in his time, those people of the nations, that, that he was reconciling to Yahweh through the gospel. Judeans spread across the Roman world who were not in Jerusalem. Once these things are realized, it should be evident that while Paul knew that there were a great many Israelites outside of Palestine in his time, he also hoped that there would yet be a remnant of them who would be faithful to Yahweh in Israel, in Palestine and therefore they would be turned to Christ, just as while there were many Israelites in Palestine and elsewhere, there remained a faithful remnant within Ahab's kingdom in Elijah's time. It is these in Palestine, these true Israelites, who were Paul's kinsmen according to the flesh, whom he prayed for, because he knew with certainty that Jerusalem was about to be destroyed by the Romans. Just like in Elijah's time, Elijah went, was commissioned to anoint Hazael, the king of Syria, because Hazael would do the will of Yahweh and wage war against the kings of Israel, who were disobedient. In Jerusalem, in Paul's time, those who had the warnings of Christ in the Gospels concerning that same thing, the coming destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans, would have opportunity to escape the danger Destruction was about to come upon those in Jerusalem who rejected Christ. And Paul sought to save his kinsmen according to the flesh from that destruction. He doesn't care about the Edomites. Now in this manner, in the manner of Elijah, in the present time, There has been a remnant in accordance with the election of favor. But it's in favor no longer from rituals, since favor would be favor no longer. Now, in verse 6, at the end of verse 6, the Codex Vaticanus and the majority text, so we see the King James Version, Each have a lengthy addition to verse 6, which may be read, as the Codex Vaticanus has it. Moreover, if from rituals, no longer is it favor, since the ritual does no longer profit. And as the majority text has it, since the ritual is no longer ritual, so it It varies by one word from the Codex Vaticanus. Paul is speaking of the remnant of true Israelites in Judea. They have the favor of Yahweh God, as all Israelites do. Paul's discussion of the Israelites in Judea does not discount the Israelites of the dispersions, from any of these things. Paul has already explained that the Israelites of the dispersions had the favor of Yahweh. This is not changing Paul's words from another chapter. This is only adding to Paul's explanation concerning Israel in Judea. He's telling these people, these Israelites of the dispersion that they should not despise their fellow Israelites in Judea. And Paul is stating that if those Israelites in Judea desire to remain in the favor of God, that that favor is not dispensed and is not realized through the rituals of the law. Rather, it's realized through the faith in Christ, and Paul explained that at length in Romans chapters 4, 5, and 6. Paul said in Romans chapter 4, Now, what may we say that our forefather Abraham has found concerning the flesh? For if Abraham from the rituals had been deemed worthy, he has reason to boast, but not to Yahweh. Indeed, what do the writings say? That Abraham trusted Yahweh, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, to he who performs rituals, his reward is not considered in accordance with favor, but in accordance with debt. And, of course, being in accordance with debt, a man is obliged to keep the whole law, and a man breaks one law, he doesn't have the, the, the favor in Christ. He does not have a propitiation before God. That's what Paul's explaining. But to he not performing, but who rather is trusting on he, meaning Christ, who must judge the impious, his faith is accounted for Righteousness. Just as David also declares the blessing of the man to whom Yahweh accounts righteousness apart from the rituals, blessed are they who are are released from lawlessness and whose errors are covered or whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom Yahweh will not account sin. The purpose of the rituals of the law were for the propitiation of sin. And now Christ, Yahweh being dead, Israel's no longer bound by the law. That's all Israel. Israel in the dispersion, Israel in Judea. There's no difference, Judean or Greek. There's no difference. The purpose of the rituals of the law were for the propitiation of sin, and now Christ is the only propitiation for sin. So Israelites, who continued to seek propitiation through rituals, were actually rejecting Christ. Here, it is also manifest that since both Christ and rituals were propitiation for sin, and only the children of Israel ever had the law, then the favor of, in Christ, which Paul speaks of, is only pertinent for the children of Israel, because only for Israel could sin be accounted. Paul went on to say in Romans chapter 4, Indeed, not through the law is to promise to Abraham or to his offspring to be that he is to be the heir of the society, but through righteousness of faith. For if they, some of the law are heirs, The faith has been voided and the promise annulled. For the law results in wrath, so where there is no law, neither is there transgression. Therefore, from of the faith, that in accordance with the favor, then the promise is to be certain to all of the offspring, not to that of the law only, but also to that of the faith of Abraham, who is the father, in Romans chapter 4, verse 1, Paul told the the Romans that Abraham was their forefather, who is the father of us all. Just as it is written that a father of many nations I have made you, before Yahweh, whom he trusted, who raises the dead to life, So what's the faith of Abraham? That he believed Yahweh, that his seed, that his offspring would become many nations. Paul of Tarsus identified those nations. Before Yahweh, whom he trusted, who raises the dead to life and calls things not existing, as existing those nations, the nations which the children of Israel became, the Celts, the Saxons, the Romans, the Dorian Greeks, the Daning Greeks, and I could go on. The list goes on. The Germanic tribes, those nations did not exist in Abraham's time. Yahweh said that they would. That's what Paul is telling us here, who contrary to expectation, in expectation believed, for which he would become a father of many nations, according to the declaration, thus your offspring will be. Abraham believed his offspring would become many nations. Of course, Abraham did not believe that his offspring would be Negroes and Chinamen. If you're a Negro, a Chinaman, a Mestizo, Abraham did not believe in you. Therefore, you cannot be part of the faith of Abraham. It's that simple. So we see from Romans chapters 4 and 9 that the nations to whom the favor and promises in Christ came are those nations of Abraham's seed found in the Israelites from before the Assyrian captivity, they were already being spread across the Oikumene, the Greco-Roman world, which came later. Paul's references to Israel here, where he is describing those in Judea who are truly Israelites and not Edomites. These references do not discount from that same favor of those nations of dispersed Israel who are being reconciled to Yahweh. And if in Romans 11.2 the phrase seed of Abraham refers to Abraham's genetic offspring, then in Romans 4.13 and Romans 4.15, the same terms also refer to Abraham's genetic offspring offspring, those nations which sprung from the loins of Abraham must therefore be identified in history. And they are in the nations of Christian Europe which were not around in Abraham's day with a couple of exceptions. The Ionians, the Tartesians. Verse 7 What then what Israel seeks after, this it did not attain to, that's where we end the question in the a New Testament. This is really important. But the chosen have succeeded, and the rest were hardened. The Greek word there, the verb, literally means hardened. The King James translators often Rendered it as blinded, which is okay, but it's not literal. Because many words have several possible definitions, and because ancient languages such as Hebrew and Greek, or even Latin or Aramaic, did not use explicit punctuation. Because of these things, often there are at least several plausible options which the translator has when rendering a particular passage. In many cases, even a slight change in punctuation can mean a significant change in meaning going from one language to another especially in Greek, where there is no punctuation. There were no periods, commas, question marks. There are words and grammatical constructions by which we can clearly see the beginning of a sentence when we read Greek. But question marks and periods, that's the, um, the translator's prerogative in many instances, and we can really only discern what the original writer truly meant from the context. <clears throat> now here in Romans chapter 11, verse 7, neither the Nestlé land, Novum Testamentum Grece, nor the King James Version extend the interrogation as it reads here, what then, what Israel seeks after? this it did not attain to, they don't do that. The King James doesn't do that. They read the Greek to say, what then? And that's the end of the question. What Israel seeks after, this it did not attain to, and that's a statement. Therefore, they read this passage in a manner as if to infer that Israel And the chosen are two different entities, which is bullshit. That alone infers the nullification of all the promises of Yahweh to Israel such as Isaiah 44.1, where the word of Yahweh says, Yet now hear, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus saith Yahweh that made thee, and formed thee from the womb, who will help thee. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and thou, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. With one little swipe of a pen, all the mainstream translations, nullify all these promises to the genetic children of Israel, I say, they're all lying. In addition to all the Old Testament witnesses concerning the children of Israel as forever being the chosen of Yahweh, a nation, Yahweh's nation, Yahweh's people, his law is written on their hearts as long as there's a sun, moon, and stars. In addition to that, the usual reading of this passage here in Romans chapter 11, verse 7, makes Paul a liar, even when this passage is compared to Paul's own words throughout this epistle. Throughout this epistle, Paul had discussed the called in accordance with purpose, the chosen, the preordained, the appointed beforehand, all terms which are only found in the Old Testament children of Israel. And everywhere that he made such references, Paul quoted Old Testament scriptures which are only applicable to the Old Testament children of Israel. Comparing Jacob and Esau, In Romans chapter 9, Paul said in verse 11 that the purpose of Yahweh concerning the chosen endures. He doesn't say that it was nullified or that it changed. Comparing Jacob and Esau, the chosen and the unchosen, Paul says that the purpose of Yahweh concerning the chosen And for that reason, Esau was excluded from the promises. Yahweh hated him. Although not one major New Testament translation can be found, which agrees with the punctuation of the Christianian New Testament in Romans 11.7, it is asserted here that the elect and Israel are one and the same, in accordance with the prophets and with all of Paul's earlier statements. It is also asserted that the rest here, in verse eleven seven, by the rest Paul means to refer to those Edomite Jews to whom Paul has been comparing the remnant of Israel in Judea since the beginning of Romans chapter 9. But it also certainly includes certain Israelites whom Yahweh had desired to punish for blindness and for their blindness and rejection of his Christ to make an example of. And we will show that in prophecy when we get to Romans eleven verses sixteen and seventeen. Concerning Paul's grammar here, in Romans chapter eleven, verse seven, if the denominational translations of this passage are correct, and only the first two words make up the interrogative, the question. Then this would be the only time in all of Paul's epistles that the phrase, ki un, is used by him as an interrogatory phrase all by itself. Everywhere else that Paul uses the phrase, it is accompanied with other words which are included in the interrogation. Even where the King James translators took it upon themselves to make it a separate question followed by a question, the minimum example of this are the words un estin" or "what is it then?" in One Corinthians chapter fourteen, verse fifteen. So even though the King James version often punctuates separately writing what then the words which follow in every other place always formulate a question and the exception is here in Romans eleven seven it's the only exception I must object I do not find this verse to be an exception rather the punctuation should be as it is read in the Christagenia New Testament, without doubt. The phrase, um" appears as the leading phrase to questions 18 times in Paul's epistles. They will be in the notes posted with this podcast, but I won't go through them all here. He, he um, Romans chapters 3, 4, 6... Seven, eight, nine, three times in nine, here in eleven, one Corinthians several times, Galatians three nineteen. This is readily verifiable in the supplement to the fifth edition of Moulton Geddon's Concordance to the Greek New Testament, which is to me an invaluable tool. It's kind of like Strong's what Strong's does for English. Moultengedon did for Greek. I can look at any Greek word and see every time it appears in, in the Greek scripture, right? That, that, that's a pretty helpful tool. If ti-um, that phrase, that Greek phrase, what is it? What then? If ti-um introduces a longer question on every other occasion where Paul used it, then it must also introduce a longer question here in Romans 11.7. This is because the King James Version and other translators have rendered Romans 11.7 in a manner which conflicts with so many of Paul's statements elsewhere and with so many of the statements in the books of the prophets. However, when you're making a translation, if you can translate this verse in the manner in which we have it here, and that translation removes any conflict which Paul would have with his own statements elsewhere, then the translator is obligated to do so. When you're making a translation, it is not righteous it is not proper to force a translation of a passage in a manner which in turn forces the original writer to contradict himself if contradiction is avoided with an alternate interpretation so long as the rules of grammar and the integrity of the meanings of the words are not violated, then that is the path which must be taken. Therefore I assert, at Romans 11.7, the Christogenia translation and punctuation are indeed correct, and all the others are wrong and I don't care how arrogant that sounds. Verse 8, Just as it is written, Yahweh has given to them a spirit of slumber, eyes that see not, and ears that hear not, unto this very day. This saying is reminiscent of Isaiah chapter 6 verses 9 and 10 which is a prophecy to the people of Judah in general whether they be good or wicked and especially those who were at the time of King Uzziah when Isaiah wrote. However more precisely here in Romans chapter 11 verse 8 Paul is quoting from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 10. We're going to read that chapter in part. Woe to Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. Add ye year to year, let them kill sacrifices. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be on the mean. As Ariel, and I will camp against thee round about and will lay siege against thee with a the mount and I will raise forts against thee he's prophesying the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem and thou shalt be brought down and shalt speak out of the ground and thy speech shall be low out of the dust and thy voice shall be as of one that has a familiar spirit. Out of the ground, and thy speech shall whisper out of the dust. And to verse 9, Stay yourselves and wonder, cry ye out and cry. They are drunken, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. For Yahweh has poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep. This is a dual prophecy for the later destruction of Jerusalem, as Paul sees it. And as close your eyes, the prophets and your rulers, the seers, has he covered. And the vision of all has become unto you as the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one that is learned, saying, read this, I pray thee, And he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And the book is delivered to him that is not learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I am not learned. By quoting this passage in reference to those who reject Christ, once again, Paul connects the coming punishment and destruction of Jerusalem to the rejection of the gospel just as he does in Romans 16.20 just as Daniel does in Daniel chapter 9 even though Paul did not quote that Paul only cares for his kinsmen according to the flesh but Paul said in verse 8 But the chosen have succeeded, and the rest were hardened. Throughout these chapters, Paul has been comparing Jacob and Esau and informing us that Jacob was to receive favor and mercy from Yahweh. Those who were hardened were not necessarily all Edomites, but rather had included men whom Yahweh had predestined for such punishment for one reason or another. We shall discuss these these men at length later in this chapter when we encounter the broken branches of verse 17. Because the broken branches surely are not Edomites. Edomites were never on the olive tree in the first place. But as we have discussed concerning ancient Israel, there were false prophets And a Canaanite population in Ariel, which means my mountain is Yahweh, I believe, which was apparently, or my mountain is God, I'm sorry, which was apparently a term for Jerusalem, which is found in canon only in Isaiah chapter 29. Note that the prophecy focuses on the prophets and rulers and seers. In Isaiah 29, likewise, in Romans chapter 10, where Paul quoted Isaiah chapter 28 in reference to the stone stone set in Zion, that prophecy was addressed to the hirelings of Ephraim, which is an epithet often used of the watchmen or the priests. And it was addressed to, ye afflicted men, and ye princes, or rulers, of this people that is in Jerusalem. So the prophecy that Paul quoted concerning these people in Romans 10, and this prophecy, which he quotes from Isaiah 29, concerning the same people, focus on the rulers, the priests, the leaders of the people, And Paul is being consistent in his application of these things. Verse 9, Romans 11. And David says, Their dining table will be for a snare and for a hunting of beasts and for a trap and for a repayment to them. Their eyes will be darkened to not see and their backs continually bow. These passages quote from Psalm 69, verses 22 and 23. We shall read a segment of the psalm to see the context of what Paul refers to. From verse 18, draw nigh unto my soul and redeem it. Deliver me because of mine enemies. Thou hast known my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. Mine adversaries are all before thee. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. And I looked for some to take pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me also gall for my meat. And in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Let their table become a snare before them. And that which should have been for their welfare, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened that they see not. Make their loins continually to shake. Pour out thine indignation upon them, and let thy wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their habitation be desolate, and let none dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom thou hast smitten, And they talk to the grief of those whom thou hast wounded. Add iniquity unto their iniquity and let them not come into thy righteousness. Let them be blotted out from the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. In this psalm, David makes an imprecatory prayer against his enemies. However, it is also a messianic a messianic prophecy of Christ and the enemies of Christ, and therefore we can readily see parallels with the events of the crucifixion as they are recorded in the gospel. When we see the context of the psalm and compare it to the way in which Paul quotes from it, it is a messianic prophecy referring to those enemies of God who partook in the crucifixion of the Christ. Their dining table will be for a snare. The keeping of the law reveals their hypocrisy and will not benefit them. They will be for a hunting of beasts. We see it written in Luke chapter 21, Christ concerning the people of Jerusalem his enemies, that their wrath would be upon them, and that they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and be led captive away into all nations. Jeremiah spoke of good and bad figs in Jerusalem. In Jeremiah, chapter 24, the word of Yahweh speaks of the good figs first. And then it says of the bad figs, and as the evil figs, which cannot be eaten, they are so evil. Thus saith Yahweh, so will I give Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and his princes, and the residue of Jerusalem that remain in this land, and them that dwell in the land of Egypt, and I will deliver them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth for their hurt, to be a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse in all the places whither I shall drive them. And I will send the sword, the famine and the pestilence among them till till they be consumed from off the land that I gave unto them, and to their fathers. With this it is evident that here were certain men of Judah whose destiny it was to be turned over to the bad things. These These men with the broken off branches, which we shall read about in the later half of Romans chapter 11. And the Canaanite and Edomite Jews who oppose Christ, they are the bad figs. Verse 11. Now I say, did they stumble in order that they would fall? Certainly not. But if in their fall is preservation to the nations, for the provocation of them to jealousy, but if their fall, is the wealth of the cosmos and their defeat, the wealth of the nations. How much more their fullness. Now we must bear in mind, Paul is not talking here about the fullness of the Edomites. He doesn't care about the Edomites. He expressed that in Romans chapter 9. The Edomites were destined, they were foreordained, as Jude says, those infiltrators among the people were of old ordained to condemnation. The Edomites were destined to stumble at the stone because they were never supposed to accept Christ. Rather, here Paul is talking about those of his brethren his kinsmen, according to the flesh, who had not yet accepted Christ. And therefore, they stumbled at the stone. In their fall is the preservation of the nations. Many of the Israelite Judeans went along with the Edomite plans to destroy Christ. That's very clear in the Gospel of John, especially in John chapter 12. And in the death of Christ the nations of scattered Israel have reconciliation to God. So in their fall is the wealth of the nations. But in turn as the gospel goes out to the nations of scattered Israel, the Israelites of Judea, who maintained the law and the prophets, were indeed provoked to jealousy. From Acts chapter 22, where upon his arrest, Paul gave a defense before the people of Jerusalem concerning his mission, which was from Joshua Christ. And at the end, he said, and he, meaning Christ, and he said, go because I shall send you off to distant nations. And Luke wrote, Now they listened until this word, and raised their voice, saying, Take such as him from the earth, for it is not fit that he lives. And Luke made it a point to say that they listened until this word, meaning when Paul was told by Christ to go, because I shall send you off to distant nations. So we see with certainty that these Judeans were provoked to jealousy upon the thought of Paul sharing the message of redemption with the far-off nations, regardless of the origin of those nations and regardless of whether these Judeans themselves had accepted Christ. Of course, Paul's discourses both in Acts and here in Romans, are historically relevant to his own time. But these discourses are no longer relevant to our time. Christ himself said of Jerusalem that it would no longer bear fruit. And those Israelite Judeans who continued to reject Christ, were ultimately separated from their brethren in Christ and ultimately mixed in with the Canaanites and Edomites who never accepted Christ and who were never supposed to. And when they do today, they do in pretense so that they could deceive Christians, so that they could be Pricks in your eyes. I speak, I'm sorry, indeed, verse 13. I speak to you, the nations, because I am an ambassador of the nations. I honor my office. If possibly, I would provoke to jealousy my kinsmen and preserve some from among them. Indeed, if the disposal of them is the reconciliation of the cosmos, what would the acceptance be if not life from among the dead? In other words, they have the same promises in Christ once they accept Christ, meaning the true Israelites in Judea. Paul clearly imagined that being provoked to jealousy upon seeing the gospel of Christ go out to the nations, which were indeed the scattered children of Israel, by that he would also turn his kinsmen in Israel to Christ. Paul is a kinsman to all Israel, but here he expresses his desire for his kinsmen in Israel. One idea does not negate the other. He makes the distinction because not all those in Judea are his kinsmen according to the flesh, because some of them are not Israel. And he goes on to explain that there is Jacob and there is Esau. By doing this, Paul is emphasizing the racial scope of the gospel He's emphasizing it. He's not negating it. Not once did Paul express concern for any Edomite or for any non-Israelite. If the Israelites of Judea had not acceded to the desires of the Edomite Sadducees, from which was the party of the high priests, as well as others of the party of the Pharisees who desired to put Christ to death, then there would be no reconciliation to Yahweh for the Israelites scattered abroad. Since Christ would not have been the Lamb of God, and there would have been no release from the law in the manner which Paul described in Romans chapter 7. The Edomites only had their way because much of Israel went along with them. Therefore, Peter, addressing the people of Judea and speaking of Christ, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, at that first Christian Pentecost, Peter exclaimed that he, meaning Christ, by the appointed will and foreknowledge of Yahweh, was surrendered. Who crucifying through lawless hands, hands without the law, you have slain. Peter lays the blame on the entire nation. Here, Paul also des- defines the scope of the word cosmos or world the reconciliation of the cosmos. Paul defines the scope of that word here to the Adamic world of scattered Israel and the Adamic Genesis 10 nations. And that's because Paul himself has already confined the message of the gospel to the nations which sprung from the loins of Abraham in Romans chapter 4. Therefore, we can't imagine that this explanation here negates that explanation in Romans 4. It certainly does not. Rather, we must define cosmos by Paul's explanation in Romans chapter 4, because that's the biblical explanation, starting with Genesis chapter 10. And Deuteronomy 32.8, which Paul upholds in Acts chapter 17. We can't understand any of these verses in isolation. That's what the Judeo-Christians want to do. Isolate every single verse in the Bible and make their own damn story up. They're liars. Paul himself confines the message of the gospel to the nations which sprung from the loins of Abraham, who are those of the Roman oikumene, who were both Judean and Greek, Scythian and Barbarian, slave and free. I know that many listeners are looking forward to our discussion of the wild olives and the olive tree of Romans chapter 11. And Yahweh willing, we will return to our presentation of Romans on August 8th from Panama City and we shall discuss the truth of that topic at length. Tomorrow night, 2C Line, part 25, more myths dispelled because Satan is not in heaven. Next Friday, Brother Ryan and Christian Identity Directions, Doctrines, Dogmas, and Agendas. Next Saturday, Pastor Mark Downey, Curtis Munchka, we're going to talk about Curtis Munchka, and we're going to talk about Christian Identity Demographics. Praise Yahweh. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Hopefully I'll see you tomorrow. Good night.